Good evening, faithful. Let us stand together and read God's word together as we are called to worship from Psalm 67. Let's say this together. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Now let us sing out so that all peoples everywhere would know the saving power of Jesus. Josiah Belflar, I'm the missions minister, uh, and today I get the pleasure of introducing two of my heroes, Chuck and Cindy Harper. If you don't, 
If you don't know, uh, they work with uh, the Navajo at, across nations. At Desert Springs, we restrain ourselves in order to uh, maximize our global gospel efforts. We restrict ourselves to three people groups, uh, the Navajo, uh, the Achi in Guatemala, and Muslims in North Africa. And the Harpers actually have a big part of uh, our work among the Navajo and for our uh, starting with uh, our work among the Achi. So could you guys tell us about uh, being members of Desert Springs and how we sent you out and kind of an introduction for those who don't know you? Sure, we'd be glad to. Um, we just love Desert Springs. Before I say anything, I've got to say thank you for your support. So many of you have given food boxes and tons of food this past year, and we just really appreciate that. Our care group, we love you guys to death. You guys just oh, couldn't say enough good about them. And all of you that just pray for us, just heard the youth group prays for us too. What a, what a gift. Well, anyway, your question was history. Okay. Uh, well, we were missionaries out on the Navajo Reservation in the mid-early 90s. And uh, my brother and sister, Sister Priscilla, brother-in-law, Dave Kinzer, were one of the first, uh, some of the first members when it was Riverview Fellowship. And they introduced us to this guy named Paul Kemp, who liked to challenge us to eat a whole Hurricanes burrito. And we used to come to town and have a burrito there, and, and uh, the church started supporting us after that. I don't know if it's because we couldn't eat as much as Paul Kemp could, but... Uh, uh, we were getting support from the church back in the early 90s or mid-90s. We moved to Albuquerque probably in uh, right around 2000. And when we moved to Albuquerque, we were so excited because every time we came to Riverview Fellowship, we would just cry. The music was so good. We're hearing excellent teaching from God's Word. And we sat in the church. It was still over at uh, one of the furniture stores, and Paul Kemp got up to preach. And he said, I'm leaving the church. I'm moving to Texas. We were like, oh, my goodness. We just moved here because we wanted to be part of your church. And uh, so anyway, we, we moved to Albuquerque. We fell in love with Desert Springs people. We went through the move to the Cibola High School and saw the church build here, La Cueva High School. And um, anyway, we, we loved and loved it, plugged in here. We prayed and prayed when we were still at La Cueva that the Lord would raise up a missions committee and that our church would really get involved in missions because missions is where our heartbeat really was. And uh, so we, we got to pray. We met Karen Gregory and we met the Scott family and just, oh, the Lord just brought so many amazing people together. And uh, to see the missions grow and then to go to Guatemala early days, that was just fantastic. And then still, being uh, when we moved back to the reservation, the church just uh, blessed us and said, we want to be part of what you're doing there. So it's been a great ride, and we just feel like this is us. We're home, although we haven't been in church for about a year, except for once. And uh, to be, be here for communion night, what because a glorious Because on time. the res, the churches have been closed, Churches right? are still closed. And they just, last Sunday was the first official Sunday they could go back to meeting again. So we're, we're glad, finally. And, uh, we just one, moved from red to orange so yeah so Chuck's part of 
um, writing a draft of a document to send to the government on behalf of the Christian churches. So they're just really getting organized now. What they need to do, there's a million questions. How do we sanitize our ATM? <laughs> there's no churches on the reservation with an ATM, but they got to know. So We didn't write that into the document. But. <laughs> so how long, Chuck, how long have you lived on or near the reservation? Well, I guess that's about all I... All my life, um, I'm actually a third-generation missionary there. My grandfather was part of the student volunteer movement back in the late 1800s. Moved to Flagstaff in uh, 1904. Started traveling around in his horse and buggy with a group of translators. And through those efforts, he uh, was instrumental in planting a number of churches all across the reservation. And then in 1930-something, a little bit before I was born, uh, they started the Navajo Bible School and Mission, which found a home base in, in Window Rock, where we live today. Wow, that's the campus you guys are operating out of. That's, that's amazing. And you've been there for so long, and you've been faithful uh, to serving the Navajo people and spreading the gospel there. You probably, at some point, felt like you saw everything. And then COVID came. Uh, right. And it became national news yeah. all across the nation. People were talking about the Navajo and how they were uh, disproportionately hurt by this uh, pandemic. Could you please talk about that? Tell us about the, the lows and then the gospel highs of, of your gospel opportunities that came up. Sure. Well, COVID actually hit the Navajo Nation pretty hard for a number of reasons. In fact, for a while, it was the hardest hit area. I think some of the other tribes were as well. But uh, the, the highest, even above New York City per capita, um, primarily because the Navajo people live so close together. Um, we would deliver food boxes or go pray with somebody, and we'd find, you know, three generations of families living in one trailer house, a three-bedroom trailer with 15, 20 people in one house. And uh, they're supposed to isolate there and stay all by themselves and not come outside, what some of the rules were in the beginning. Uh, no wonder the virus is spreading quickly. and um, So it, it was bad. Um, the good news, though, they've been uh, doing a fabulous job and now have one of the highest rates of people vaccinated. And uh, last Tuesday, first day we had since last March 17, that there have been no, no new cases and no deaths. Wow. Just this week. Just That's this great. week. So yeah. that was great. What, one of the really neat things that happened, well, there were several really amazing things that never would have happened if it wasn't for COVID. But what Satan means to destroy us, God will use for his good, right? So we helped to mobilize pastors to deliver food boxes. So Desert Springs was part of that effort to get a lot of food. So we had an Eastern distribution site and Western and about 6,000 boxes went out. And every single box that went out had a Bible in it and a track about where is God in my suffering and really cool comics that had Navajo words teaching grandmas how to wash their hands. And a lot of people don't have water in their homes. So to say wash your hands often because usually there's just a bowl of water and everybody shares that all day and then you get a fresh one tomorrow. So it was really hard for, for the Navajo people to sanitize the way um, we needed to. But the boxes went out, the gospel went out and a lot of pastors in the area helped to deliver boxes and they said we were able to go into homes, well to the doorstop, they didn't really go into any homes, but they were able to go and pray with people that who never would have come to church, very traditional religious people that never would have stepped foot in a Christian church. 
And because of COVID and a box of food and a Bible and a track, they were able to hear about the gospel they never would have heard had it not been for COVID. So that was really a blessing to be part of. Another thing that God really did this past year, before COVID ever hit, we built a relationship with the IFOC, which is an international chaplains group. And last, a year ago, September, we were able to train 24 Navajo young people, a couple of Zuni people, um, to be trained as chaplains. Well, little did we know how relevant that was, that this year we could mobilize those chaplains and to get to be able to counsel with so many people. Um, we've lost 1,300 people almost on the reservation and uh, at least 30 pastors. And so uh, I don't know how many times I've been called, can you come be a pallbearer? Can you come lead a memorial service? Um, no one else wants to do it. So we've done a number of funerals and things this past year. Yeah. You don't have to cut us off because we just of, tell too many stories. <laughs> well, there's a, a lot of celebrations and a lot of deep, yeah. deep heartache. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for 30 pastors yeah. died during COVID. We have yeah. far too many to start with. So, so that kind of ties into a big prayer request that came up. I reached out to uh, Pastor Eugene and, and, and Pastor Butler, and I asked them, you know, how can we be praying for you? And Pastor Butler sent me a long list, but the, the biggest thing on the list was pray for the men. And then uh, Pastor Eugene just sent me one word in his prayer request, men. And so I was wondering to myself, is this a, a coincidence or is there a, a struggle in reaching men with the gospel among the Navajo? Well, that's a great question. There's so many needs for men to raise up, be raised up on the reservation. We think probably eight, 80% of all the churches are full of women, not men. So there's very few men that are really out there as leaders. And a lot of that is because of the cultural breakdowns. You know, the government, one young person told me one time, the government has taken away everything we do and we can no longer provide for our family. The government has uh, provided clothes, food, everything we, we do as men. And uh, they took away their ability to raise sheep. You know, even back in the 60s even, they had the Livestock Reduction Act, which just killed thousands and thousands of their animals just because the government knows best. And um, all sorts of things have happened, which has just crashed the social structure, and men are just left there to do nothing but fall into sexual or not, not fall into uh, bad habits and, and things that are just tearing their culture society apart. So. You, you all have heard, I'm sure, of lots of alcoholism and substance abuse. And there's a lot of trafficking on the reservation now. So we have a little task force developing. And so you can pray for that too, that God will cover us with protection and that we will be open to hear what God wants to do for jobs, for churches, for pastors, for families that are really broken. Yeah, that's, it's helpful for us to know, you know, how to pray for uh, the Navajo and what their needs are. And the needs are for men to have jobs, uh, mm -hmm. things to be able to do, to be able to serve their families, to have strong families. And obviously, most importantly, that they, they uh, connect with Christ, that they right. put their trust in Christ and then connect yeah. with the church. Yeah. We have a men's group every Sunday night. We, before COVID, we're averaging about 35 men to come to our house when, on Sunday evenings. These, some of these men were just in tears as they leave. We never knew us men could get together and pray and share our concerns and be together as men. They said, we've never seen this before. 
And it's just been a real joy. Oh, we're so thankful for your ministry to them. So uh, going forward, uh, what is one thing we can pray for across nations? They used to be called Western Indian Ministries, but now you're called Across Nations. Uh, what is one thing going forward that we can pray for? Well, there's all sorts of things, but I would say pray that we could finish our radio building on time. We're uh, trying to get a radio station, radio studio building. You know, we have four radio stations that are covering the entire reservation. And um, we can be in almost everyone's home 24-7, you know, and teaching the good news, telling them how to care for themselves, where to go get your vaccination, how to how to share your faith and just worship the Lord. And in the evening, Chuck tells really bad dad jokes <laughs> at drive time. <laughs> That's right. I'll, I'll spare you right now. We had a, I had a guy in my office this morning who said, you know, he, he said, I really need a job. Uh, could you hire me to do anything? So we're, we're trying to create ways for them to, to work. In fact, that's one of our strategies, but this is one prayer request. But pray that we could finish that radio building, and we also want to develop that whole campus into a, into a small business incubator so we can help the Navajo people establish work, so we can hire some of these young men and get them established in the Word. One of those is through the radio station. We've got so many young guys helping us with that, so it's been a huge blessing. Yeah, we'll gladly pray for you about that. Yeah. We're excited about the radio tower. You can see they're building it out of shipping containers, mm -hmm. and it's it's progressing along. We have a roof now. Have a roof. That's yeah. Right. yeah, it's great. Yeah. And the <laughs> windows week, are all in, too. Next week, we're going to put the plumbing in. So yeah. keep praying for us, okay, because we really need prayer cover. Anything Satan can do to halt the work. We, it was dormant for about five weeks while our our Navajo general contractor had COVID in his ranks, and so people didn't come to work, and then somebody was grieving for somebody who died, and so they couldn't come to work, and it was just really hard. So pray that uh, we'll have favor with God and with man, and that the station will be a beautiful testimony. We want the Native people to see that we love them, that we honor them and respect them, and we want to help them reach their potential in Christ. Amen. So that's, that's great. Really and we important. want that for you guys. Yeah. And we're going to be praying about Thank that. You. So if you have any questions or you want to uh, meet the Harpers for the first time after our service, you can come and they'll be up front and they'd, they'd gladly talk to you about all the things going on yeah. on the rest. So uh, let me uh, join me as I pray for them yeah, and for God's sorry. work among the Navajo. Thank you. Thank you. God, we just thank you so much for saving the Harpers. We thank you for sending them and allowing our church to be a part of sending them uh, to minister, to pastors, to young men, uh, over the radio station, to anyone who would listen and sharing the gospel with them, Lord. We pray for gospel expansion among the Navajo. We pray for strong churches. We pray for open ears uh, to receive your good word. Lord, we also pray for jobs. We pray uh, these, these men want good things. They want to be able to work. And we pray that you would provide them opportunities to be able to work, to provide for their families, to be able to serve their neighbor. And we pray uh, that they would also connect with churches, Lord. Uh, we pray that you would do a good work, Lord, for we want, as you want, a strong, strong contingent of Navajo among your heavenly choir. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's thank the Lord and thank the Harpers again. 
Thank you, guys. Well, my heart is full after hearing that, so I want to overflow in praise and thanksgiving. So let us stand together and unite our voices, unite our hearts as we sing. I was glad when they said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. I was glad. I was glad when they said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. We are assured a place in the gates, this holy city of peace. Its walls are built upon love and faith, founded in our unity. I was glad when they said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Pray for the peace of the temple he keeps, he will secure every stone. Sing for the sake all the redeemed speak good and make his rest known i was glad when they said i was glad when they said let us go to the house of the lord we go up god's people will go up and shout his praises in every time. The throne of His judgment is set for all time for the Christ, David's son. I was glad when they said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of God. I was glad. When they said, I was glad. When they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go to the house of the Lord. Let us go to the house of the Lord. Well, we gather together as a living temple, a living house to hear from God, to hear from his word. His word is like a fireplace that we gather around. It gives light, gives heat and health and life. Let us sing now this prayer and ask for the Spirit's help as we come to the word. Lord, we come to hear your word. Shine your light on sheath your sword send your spirit forth in power come and bless your church this hour 
church. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 2 tonight. The book of Isaiah chapter 2. When we do these Lord's Supper services, whoever's preaching, there's a bit more flexibility to pick what passage you want to teach out of because it's not through a book of the Bible. Um, so I was just praying, you know, Lord, what passage would, uh, would you want me to meditate on and bring to our church? Knowing that this service was coming up and, and I felt led to Isaiah chapter 2, not knowing that we were going to be hearing from some of our missionaries. This morning, not knowing that the Sunday before, Ryan was going to talk about uh, the, the Jews and the Gentiles being brought together as a fulfillment of the prophetic vision of all of the nations coming in together into the church. But God knew, and he brought us to this passage, which is an amazing one to think about tonight. So we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first five verses. Okay, everybody there? We'll have the words up on the screen too. I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll pray. This is the word... That Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. 
And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is God's beautiful word. Will you pray with me? God, I pray that you would bless us this hour, that this word uh, would go out from my mouth right now, and that it would be your word, that the things that I say and the things that we all think about this word of yours would be true and right and that you would lead us, that you would convict us, that you would bless us and through us bless all the nations of the earth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's an old African-American spiritual called Down by the Riverside. You know this song? The, The verses are repetitive. It's kind of the same idea. It says, I'm gonna lay my burdens down by the riverside. I'm going to put on my long white robe down by the riverside. And the riverside is obviously a reference to the, the river Jordan, which in the Old Testament marked the boundary between Israel's slavery and their freedom and the promised land. They're going to lay down their burdens down by the riverside. Some scholars actually think that this song, as the Uh, African-American slaves in the antebellum south would sing it as a reference to the Ohio River, which, if you could get to the Ohio River, led you to the northern states and to freedom. And so they think maybe they would sing this song sometimes to signal that somebody operating the Underground Railroad was was working in that area and they could get to the Ohio River. But regardless, we know that this song also had deep spiritual meaning for our brothers and sisters who sang it, that for them the riverside also meant the, the boundary between your uh, slavery and to sin and your freedom by faith in Jesus Christ when you go down into the river of baptism. And most of all, that it meant the true freedom that is won for every believer in Christ when they enter into the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth, when we, when we cross the river Jordan of this life, of this age, into the age to come. There we will lay our burdens down down by the riverside. And that's where the chorus comes in. It says, I'm going to lay down my burden down by the riverside and study war no more. I'm going to study war no more. Study war no more. Study war no more. Think about who wrote that song. Think about who was singing that song. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who were in chains, who were enslaved, who many of whom were were born and lived and died under hostility, under violence, under suffering that we can't even imagine. And they would sing this song meditating on Isaiah chapter 2. There's going to be a day where I study war no more. 
That was their hope. And I know that in that they hoped that maybe that day would come in their own life. And we can think that about our own suffering and we can think that about injustice that we see in this life, that maybe this is the day when we will study war no more, but we know, we know that there is a day when we will study war no more. And that was their hope in Christian. That is, that is our hope. Because we still live in a world of incredible hostility. We thank God that that system of race-based chattel slavery was ended in America. And it was ended because of the work, I think, of white and black Christians who said, we're going to beat our swords into plowshares today. We're going to do this today. But even today, we live in a society where there's all kinds of racial and ethnic hostility. And you all feel this, yes? Going in all directions. But beyond that, this is just a hostile age. Hostility marks our age just like it has every other age. There's political division, cancel culture, protests, riots, violence unspeakable violence that we don't even know how to talk about because we're so divided in this age that we can't even even figure out what's going on when people are dying. It's all over the news. It's not just in our own country. Even now, today, there are wars waging in other countries, unjust wars, and genocide. Right now in China, There's an attempt to wipe out an entire ethnic group, the Uyghurs. Genocide today. Hostility. Violence. The reality is that hostility has exists and will exist between groups, tribes, nation against nation, and even person against person. But our God is a God of peace. And he reveals himself as such in this text. The big idea of this text goes like this. The nations flow in when God's word goes out. So God's people must walk in his light. That's how this text goes. It's our outline. The nations flow in, in verses 1 to 3, when God's word goes out. It's the end of verse 3 through verse 4. So, verse 5, God's people must walk in his light. So look with me at verse 1. This is under that first point. The nations flow in. This says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Isn't that an interesting construction? How do you see a word? We know that Isaiah is seeing a vision, but that vision is a message for God's people, specifically for Judah and Jerusalem. This was Isaiah's people. And Isaiah's society, like our own, was one that was familiar with conflict and with hostility and violence. If you read the first five chapters of this book, which are something of an introduction to this uh, prophetic book, the prophet paints a really bleak picture of what's going on in the society around him. The rich, oppressed, the poor, there is bloodshed and violence. Foreign nations, Assyria and Babylon, are encroaching on Judah and Israel, ready for war, ready to fight. They know hostility, they know war. 
And all of this, according to Isaiah, is the result of Judah's idolatry. Even though they seem like they're a, a religious people, the truth is that in their hearts, they're worshiping idols. And the fruit of that false worship is all of this bad stuff, injustice, quarreling, bloodshed. That's Jerusalem as it is in Isaiah's time. And right in the middle of all of that, God gives Isaiah a vision of the Jerusalem that will be. Isaiah is standing squarely in the old Jerusalem and God is going to give him a vision of the new Jerusalem. Look at verse two. It shall come to pass in the latter days. In the latter days. Now I take that, the latter days, to mean just what it sounds like, the last days, the end days. But, but let me say, I'll just, I'll just add here that you can interpret this passage a little differently uh, depending on where you're coming from. So some people will see this passage as actually uh, a vision of what they call the millennial kingdom. Okay, so this is, this is a thousand year reign that they envision sometime in the future, but, but an earthly reign of Jesus in Jerusalem before the new heavens and the new earth. You can see it that way. I don't personally see it that way. I don't think that there's a millennial kingdom to come. I think we're in the millennium right now. And, and if you want to buy me coffee, I would love to sit down and talk about why I think that that's true. But I, but I think the point that this is trying to get to is true. What, whatever eschatology you have, whatever scheme of interpreting these passages you have, I think the point is clear. That Isaiah says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. This is the vision that Isaiah has. And this is super interesting. Jerusalem, the city, is up on a mountain, Mount Zion. But the truth is it's really kind of more like a hill than a mountain. Jerusalem's about 2,500 feet above sea level. I don't think I need to tell you guys, we're twice that right here in this room. And if you look at the the crest, that's 10,000 feet up. So by earthly standards, Mount Zion, not impressive. (laughs) And you got to understand that at, at this time that this was written... All of the people in the, in the ancient world, they thought that the gods lived on top of mountains, right? Think about Mount Olympus, or think about the high places in the Old Testament, okay? So, so they think that the gods live on top of mountains, and obviously the higher the mountain, the better, because you're closer to heaven. Just 100 miles north of Jerusalem, and what's today the border between Lebanon and Syria, there's a mountain called Mount Hermon. And that's the highest point in the whole region, in the whole eastern Mediterranean. It's 9,000 feet above sea level. That's a mountain. And Israel's neighbors thought so. Excavations have revealed more than 20 different temple complexes on top of Mount Hermon. Because it was close to heaven. But God chose Mount Mount Zion as his dwelling place. Dinky old Jerusalem. That's how God works, isn't it? God always chooses the smallest and the least, what the world would call foolish, to shame the wise and to prove that it's God alone who's mighty. It's God alone who works, regardless of what the world thinks. God doesn't need a high mountain. This is the the same principle of the mustard seed, that it's the tiniest seed, but it grows into the biggest tree in the garden. That's what Isaiah is seeing here in verse 2. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. 
Now, obviously, we don't need to take that literally. Like in, in the new heavens and the new earth, Jerusalem is going to be taller than Mount Everest, which is 30,000 feet, by the way. But this is making a theological statement. And it's getting right to the heart of the problem, which is idolatry. I think the big principle that emerges from Isaiah chapter 2 is this. That the reason that there is so much violence and fighting and hostility in the world is because we're all idol worshipers. The reason that there is so much violence and hostility in the world and in your own heart is because we're all idol worshipers. The reason that nation fights against nation is because they're failing to rightly worship the one true God. And the reason that you fight against your spouse is because, at least in that moment, one of you is failing to rightly worship the one true God. And you have to take this all the way back to the beginning, back to the garden. Okay, remember that when God made the world, he made the world in such a way that, that he was alone to be worshipped. That mankind existed in this world under God to worship God rightly. And God would rule in this world as the judge. So that means that whatever God determined was right and wrong, good and evil, that was it for everyone. And everyone was there to obey God's instruction, to obey God's commandments. And mankind was made under God's rule as sub-rulers or vice-regents to go out as gardeners, to go out and subdue the earth, to, to cultivate the earth and to be fruitful and multiply as they obeyed God's commandments. That was the world that was perfect as it was meant to be. But instead of obeying God, Adam and Eve believed a lie. What was the lie? Do you remember? That if they disobeyed, God. They would become like God and they would know what? Good from evil. They wanted to be the judge themselves. They wanted to judge what was right and wrong. They wanted to judge what was good and evil. That was the original sin and it was an act of war. It was an act of hostility against God. They wanted to elevate themselves. They wanted to lift up their own mountain to build their own temple to themselves over and against God. And not just against God, but against everybody else. Every human suddenly was, was turned against every other human because we all wanted what we wanted. And everyone born in the line of Adam, we've all inherited the same nature. We all want to be singularly worshipped. We all want to be in charge. We want to be the one that judges good from evil. And that's idolatry. No matter how you call it, no matter what name you put on it, it's just self-worship. And we're all susceptible to it. We all want our own way. And here's the point. When we don't get our own way as the judge, when we're the one that determines what's good and evil and we don't get that from somebody else, what do we do? We enact vengeance on them. We cast our judgment on them. Remember the very next story in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4? After this first act of sin, do you remember what happened to the very next people born in the line of Adam, Cain, and Abel? Murder. Violence. Consider James chapter 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. 
You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. That's Old Testament prophetic speak for you idolatrous people. That's our problem. It's our problem individually, and it just extends to our groups to our tribes, to our structures, to our nations. We are all idol worshipers, going up to our own mountains to try and worship ourselves and get our own way. But in the latter days, in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And look at how verse two ends. And all the nations shall flow to it, shall flow to it. This is beautiful imagery that's flowing like a river, but it's a river flowing up a mountain. It's not, it's not natural. Just like it's not natural for us to do anything other than worship ourselves, but in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the latter days, things that are not natural but supernatural become reality. The nations flow in. They flow up into Jerusalem together. And I love this. I love this. These nations come in and they they maintain their distinctiveness. You can still say this nation is this nation and this nation is this nation. They are still unique in their own cultural way. The book of Revelation says that they will still have their own language, okay? And I think that also means that they'll have their own cultural heritage. There will still be these unique, beautiful things about all of the different peoples of the earth that God has made, but they've come in all together, and what do they leave behind? Their hostility. They come in together. How is that possible? Because they're not worshiping false gods anymore. They're not going up to other mountains. They're coming to Mount Zion. Verse three, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his path. They're not being forced to come into Zion. They haven't been conquered by Judah and led as captives at the tip of a sword. They're coming willingly. They're spurring each other on. Do you see that? They say, come on, let's go. Let's go up to Zion so that we can worship God, the God of Jacob. We want him to teach us his ways. We want to walk in his paths because we realize that the paths that we were on were the wrong paths. The mountains that we were climbing were the wrong mountains. We want to worship this God now because we see finally that this God is good. This is the one true God. Doesn't that sound like faith to you? These nations have repented. They've believed in God. That's the vision that Isaiah sees. And, and we know that that vision is repeated in other places, most of all in the book of Revelation. And, and so what do, we, what do we know about that? When we see these visions, we know it's going to happen. Isn't that good news? We know that there's going to be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation all gathered together in the new heavens and the new earth, in the new Jerusalem. But the question is how? How are they going to come in? Why are they coming in? And that's our second point. The nations flow in when God's word goes out. So look at the end of verse 3, that line that begins with the word for. 
for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. It's a little sentence, but this marks a huge shift in redemptive history. This is a shift from what, what we would call the come and see approach to missions that, that marked the old covenant, okay? That Israel was supposed to just be a good example of God's just laws. And we know that they failed at that miserably. But the idea was that they would just demonstrate God's goodness and righteousness through their laws. And the nations would look in, you know, and see, oh, what did they got? Oh, wow, that, that looks cool. Let's go check that out. But this isn't that. This isn't passive, come and see. I think this is the shift to the going and telling, to the sending that characterizes the new covenants. The word goes out. And through that word going out, the nations are drawn in. I think all of this that Isaiah is seeing, this is the future fulfillment of all of the promises in the Old Testament, especially the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And that promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, if you remember, comes after Genesis chapter 11. Do you remember what chapter 11 is? The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. When all of the nations of the earth were united. But what were they united around? Their idolatry. Their self-worship. What did they want to do? They wanted to build a tower, a man-made mountain, so that they could exalt themselves. And in response to that, God came and he divided them. And that division, that scattering of the nations throughout the earth, that just came with even more hostility. And out of all of those divided nations, God comes to Abraham, this one man, this one insignificant little nomad that didn't even have any children, even though he was like 70. God says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And in that nation, and in your offspring, all of the other nations of the earth are going to be blessed. It's a promise that God made to Abraham that that Isaiah is picking up here. I think it's a promise that gets even more focused on on that nation's king, King David, who was going to rule where? In Jerusalem. In a place like Psalm chapter 2, God tells to David that he's going to give him the nations as an inheritance. And he's going to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. So these promises keep on building and then you get this promise like this in Isaiah and Isaiah sees, I see something in the end. It's kind of, it's kind of fuzzy. It's going to get clearer. But what I definitely know is that all of the nations are coming into Jerusalem and they're laying down their differences. They're laying down their false worship and they're coming to worship our God, the God of Jacob. And we church, we know that all of this is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The, the, the true offspring of Abraham, Jesus is, Paul calls him. And the true son of David, who sits and rules on David's throne even now. Jesus came and he said, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all men to myself. All the nations to me. I am that temple. I am that Jerusalem. I am that king. I am the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. And we know that it's not just Jesus. We know that Jesus is the head of a whole new people of God, and that's us. That these promises are fulfilled in the church. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews says about us, about the church in chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. You have come to Mount Zion. He's calling us Mount Zion. 
You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a better covenant. The writer of the book of Hebrews says that what Isaiah saw as being fulfilled in the latter days has already started right here in this room. Isn't that amazing? The church is the place from which God's word goes out. We are Jerusalem, and out of Zion shall go the law. And as the word goes out, the nations flow in. Do you get it, church? This is what we're talking about tonight. This is why we send people to the Navajo. This is why we send people to the Achi. This is why we send people to North Africa because Christ has sent us out. This is the Great Commission. Jesus says, you, my disciples, I am sending out as the one who has authority over all things. Go, make disciples of all the nations. Teaching them to what? Obey him. You see, this is all Isaiah 2 stuff that the New Testament writers are picking up on, that Jesus himself is picking up on. Think about the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, the reverse Tower of Babel. All of these people from different nations with all of these different languages, and yet they all hear the same gospel in their own language. And what do they do? The word goes out, they come in. They are drawn in. They flow up into Mount Zion, the church. The word is going out, and the nations will flow in. We know that this promise is sure. But here, here's the, the big idea of this part of Isaiah chapter 2, that when those nations come in, there will be peace. There's peace. Look at verse 4 of our passage. It says, He, God, shall judge between the nations. And shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. And all that assumes, right, that there is war. That there are disputes. That nations have beefs with other nations. Of course there are. There's historical grievances, there are rival claims, there are ethnic divisions, but in the new Jerusalem, they are settled. In the new heavens and the new earth, there aren't disputes anymore. There aren't wars anymore. In fact, it says there's not even instruments of war. I think this is some of the most beautiful stuff in the whole Bible. We're going to take our swords and we're going to turn them into plowshares. I don't even know what a plowshare is, but I know you use it to garden. And that doesn't mean, again, that we're going to actually, you know, I haven't seen a sword, right? Except the ones at the mall. But we're going to use our our weapons of war for weapons of agriculture. We're going to take our F-22s and turn them into tractors. I don't know what it's going to look like exactly, but I know that the point is all of this God-given creativity that right now we're using idolatrously as weapons of war, we're going to use them instead for weapons of fruitfulness. That we're going to be gardeners again goes all the way back to the very beginning. And let me just add, okay, I know some of you guys like work on F-22s. Don't stop. We need them now. There is still war and, and we need to be defended, okay? That's not what this is saying. 
Okay, thank you for that work that you do. But looking forward to that day when it goes back to the way that it was in the very beginning. Swords turned into tools for gardening. This is Genesis 4 and Genesis 3 rolling back to Genesis 2. Do you see that? It's the undoing of the curse. It's the undoing of the fall. And just like at the very beginning, when this happens, we will all be worshiping God rightly again. And that's how the hostility ceases. That we're not trying to assert our place as the judge, but we are submitting to God as judge. Verse 4 again, he shall judge between nations. He shall settle their disputes according to his law that goes out. The only way that we have peace in the next life, but even in this life, is by submitting to God, by submitting to his rule, by no longer putting ourselves on God's throne and trying to rule in his place and not by judging others according to our standards of good and evil by not judging others according to what we think is right or wrong, according to our own desires. True peace, lasting peace, only comes when we all alike understand that we stand under God's judgment, that we are all alike sinful and idolatrous and at war with God. But God rather than enacting his vengeance on us, poured out his wrath on his own son. God made peace with us when we are at war with him. The late John Webster wrote these words as he meditated on this passage. He said, in one very real sense, the establishing of God's judgment has already taken place. And it's taken place in Jerusalem though not in the temple, but in a far darker place, on a hill outside the gate of the holy city and the dying of the man, Jesus. For it is in him that God's final judgment is declared and becomes finally effective. There, God's truth is manifest. There, sin and death are robbed of their power to destroy, for he Jesus Christ is God's law. He is God's word. He, the one judged and sent to death, is himself the judge of all things. And in him alone, we and all other poor sinners are to find our peace. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, the son of David. He's the one that deserves a throne in Jerusalem and yet he hung on a cross outside the gates. And in that judgment, that judgment that we deserve but that was poured out on our Messiah, this this judgment that that was still a mystery to Isaiah as he's trying to piece it all together, these visions that he's seeing of a suffering servant and yet also the, the Christ of God, how these things fit together. We know that Christ is our peace. He has resolved the conflict of our hostility with God that stems all the way back to the garden. We must recognize that we deserve that wrath 
and that that wrath was poured out on Jesus. And because of that, because of that judgment that was established there on the cross, we can, who have believed in Christ, go into the house of God and worship freely because of Christ's sacrifice. I think Isaiah 2, as I said, is a vision of those who have believed. This is not saying that all of the nations will come in, as in every single citizen of every single nation will come in. It's the people that want to. It's the people that have turned and repented and believed this is the one true God. They have repented of their sins and they enter in and they find peace with this God. Have you, have you found your peace with this God? It is only through Jesus Christ. I think all of those people from those nations who would not repent, who would refuse to come down off of their own mountains, they will be judged. They will be judged by, by this God for their hostility to God. So I hope that you would repent. I hope that you would believe this gospel because there is peace with God through Jesus Christ. But I know most of you in this room are believers. You've believed this gospel. And I think what this means for us is that we have to remember if God has poured out the judgment that we deserved on his son, then how dare we judge anyone else? If our conflict with God has been settled through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that means that there is no room for conflict in the house of God. Do you see that? That even now God is reigning and settling our disputes. Disputes between nations. and Disputes between individuals. There is no room for hostility in this house because our hostility has been removed so there's no room church for hostility based on race or ethnicity there's no room for racism and I mean that every way there is no one that is immune from racism no race that cannot be racist and there's no room for that in our hearts nor is there room for conflict based on the way that somebody voted were the reasons for which they voted. There can't be room for hostility based on somebody's views about COVID or masks. It doesn't mean that we can't have differences. It doesn't mean that we can't have well-meaning disputes about those things, but there's not room for hostility, for vengeance, for judging in your heart that someone else is evil because of what you think they think and then wanting to judge them in the place of God. There's no room for that because Christ is our peace. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two. And in this passage, he's talking about God reconciling the differences between Jews and Gentiles between whom there was, there was a dividing wall of, of covenants. But in the new covenant, there's no hostility. And I think that that removal of division extends well beyond just this reconciling of Jews and Gentiles together. So listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were once far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access 
in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the house of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. We're the temple and there's no dividing walls in this temple. That's the vision that Isaiah has of of the latter days. But we know that those latter days have begun already and this is what he gets to in the very last verse. In verse five, which is our last point, God's people must walk in his light. I think we should read verse five as as kind of a snap back to reality for Isaiah. God's just given him this amazing vision of the latter days, all the nations coming in and all their hostility ceasing, that there's no more disputes anymore, and then it ends. And he's back in the real world, back in the old Jerusalem. And he looks around and he sees all of the violence and all the injustice and all the hostility and all of the war. And so he says in verse 5, Oh, house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's a parallel to verse 3, where all of the nations are the ones that say, Come. They say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. And Isaiah says to Jacob, Come. Let's live according to that vision. Let me tell you about the glorious light that I've seen of the new Jerusalem. Let's walk in that light now, Jacob. Because the only way that the nations are going to come in is if we do. Isaiah was unsuccessful in that call. He went to a people that God said would be deaf and blind. They refused to listen to God's word as Isaiah sent it out. And so because of that, they themselves fell to the sword. But Jesus is the better prophet. He's the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus not only calls us to walk in the light of the Lord, but he also empowers us to walk in the light of the Lord. In fact, he makes us the light, a light. So Jesus calls to us, church, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us be the means by which the word goes out. We are the Jerusalem. We are sent to send that word out to the nations. And maybe you've heard this testimony tonight about people that are laboring amongst people that have not heard the gospel. Maybe that's you. Maybe you need to pray about that. Maybe that's you too, that you need to be sent out from this place to go and share, to speak God's word to the nations. But church, also, as we are going out even to our neighborhoods, proclaiming this word of the Lord, we also have to be a people that demonstrates the peace that accords with the gospel of peace. We need to be a people of peace. And how do we do that? Well, I think briefly, when it comes to ourselves, we just need to be a lot more self-suspicious. We need to be a lot more aware of the fact that we are prone to idolatry, that we are prone to want to worship ourselves and to judge what is good and evil for ourselves and according to our own desires. We need to be a kind of people that, that see planks in our own eyes, 
We need to be the kind of people that, that are at least open to the possibility that we have some planks. I think that's how God is going to settle those disputes when the nations come in. These people are going to bring their historical grievances and they're going to lay them down before the judge and the judge is going to say, you know what, you are sinning this way and you are sinning this way and that's why you can't agree. And we'll say, he's right! And I think that's the work that the Spirit does now. And we need to submit to it. We need to submit to that judgment. We need to pray prayers like in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We need to be a people that submit to the word of God, to the law of God. And when it comes to others, we need to be peacemakers. We need to long for reconciliation. We need to be a people that can't be okay with disputes. We need to be a people that go out of our way to make peace, to be reconciled, to speak words not of retaliation and not of hostility, but words of peace and thanksgiving. And I think in light of this, I would, I would recommend, this is, not, this is not thus saith the Lord, I'm not trying to bind your conscience to this, but I think as we behold that light in the future of diversity and unity, of people coming together, I would encourage you maybe to go out of your way to build relationships with people that are different from you. People that are different from you ethnically, racially, people that are different from you socioeconomically, educationally, people that are different from you in any number of ways. But I think, I think that this could encourage us to be a kind of people that are, that are trying to pursue deep, meaningful relationships with people that aren't like us. And here's why I get so excited about that vision, church. I know that you watch the same news that I do. You hear the same stuff that I do in this world where the narrative all the time is just all about people who hate other people. It's all about this group hates this group. This guy hates this guy for this reason. It's all about ascribing hate. But what if the world looked at the church? What if the world looked at our church and it saw a people where that narrative just didn't fit were people that had historic reasons for hating other people. But they're sitting down together at a meal in their family room. They're loving each other. They're even talking through those things, those reasons that there might be animosity. They're talking about it freely and they're working together to be reconciled. Wouldn't that be an amazing picture? Don't you think that the nations would see that and they say, I want to be in that house. I want to I know their God, that God of peace. I think that's in the vision that Isaiah is encouraging us to. And I think that's something that we can do right now in this room. When we sit down to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're celebrating a meal of peace. This is a meal about our reconciliation with God through Jesus Christ who suffered the judgment that we deserve and it's also a meal that testifies to the peace that we have with everybody else in this room. We all come to this meal equal. Sinners before a perfect God who gave us his son to die for our sins. There's no division in that. There's no superiority in that. 
This is just the gospel. And we come to celebrate that despite everything the world says about who should hate who. Because God has loved us. If you confess that same hope, if your peace with God is through Jesus Christ and Christ alone, if you're not standing on top of your own mountain, then this meal is for you. But if that's not you, if you haven't hoped in Jesus Christ as the Savior for your sins, as the one that died for your sins, then, then I'm really glad that you're here, but what we're about to do is not for you. There is a dividing wall, but it's not between races, it's not between different people, it's between those that believe in Jesus and those that are still worshiping themselves. And so when we take this meal, I'm just going to ask you, even if you've already grabbed the elements, to just abstain. If you don't believe this gospel, then just think about what I'm talking about. Think about how beautiful this is, this vision of peace that you can have, peace with God and peace with others. But those of you that have believed this gospel, okay, you should have grabbed the elements. If you didn't, they're going to be right outside those doors. We're going to sing a song and you can do that. What we're going to do before we take this meal is I'm going to pray. And we're going to pray a prayer of reflection. We're going to pray that prayer like in Psalm 139. We're going to ask God to search us and to reveal to us any hidden faults so that we can confess them to God as idolatry. And we're going to know that that sin was paid for on the cross. And I might encourage you to especially ask God to search you if there's any, any hate in your heart towards somebody else. Maybe even somebody in this room. Maybe to somebody that you said an errant word to, somebody that you've hurt, or somebody that's hurt you. Okay, when we take this meal, we're saying that we're all good with each other. And if that's not true, well, then you're lying when you come and take this meal. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in the, in the section where he's talking about anger, he says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Maybe you need to do that tonight. Pray and if you realize, man, there's somebody that I'm just, I'm not right with in this church. And I'd encourage you to abstain tonight. Leave your gift at the altar. And as soon as we're done, go and text that person. Call that person. Grab them if they're in here and, and say, we gotta work this out. We gotta be a peacemaker. And then the next time we celebrate this meal, you guys can come together peace, renewed fellowship, reconciliation. So, so that's what we're going to do is we're going to just ask God to search us. It's going to be quiet in the room for a minute, okay? Ask God to search you. Ask God to reveal any sin. Confess that to the Lord. If you feel like there's more steps that need to be taken, do that, okay? And most of all, once you've prayed to the Lord and prayed that confession, then know, know that you have peace with God. And then I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing. And then we'll celebrate that peace together with this meal, okay? So everybody right now where you are, take a moment and just pray to God. Confess your sins to God in your heart.
God, we know that we have no right in ourselves to say, let's go to God's house. To hear from him, to learn from him that he can lead us. God, we all confess that we have sinned against you, that we are idol worshipers in our own way, that we are all trying to exalt ourselves over you. God, we confess Christ. The one that that brings the blessing to the nations. The one that has made a way for everybody from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Anyone that would repent and believe to come and, and be made right with you. To be at peace with you. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for... Thank you for his sacrifice. And God, I pray that you would help us to not spurn that sacrifice by holding out judgment against someone else, by being hateful in our heart, by being judgmental in our heart. God, I pray that you would search us and and help us to see if we're doing that, that you would make us a people more and more of peace, a people that exhibit peace, a people that the world looks at and just doesn't understand because, because there's so much love and reconciliation. That's that light of the latter days shining in this place right now. Lord, I pray that you would help us to uh, be empowered to go to the nations, to our neighborhoods, to our own families, to preach your word. And I pray that you would use this meal to encourage us and remind us of that gospel that we proclaim. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and respond.
feast in the house of Zion, and you have come to Mount Zion. We're going to feast right here, feast by faith on the sacrifice of Christ. So if you've got your bread, please get that ready. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body. And I'm giving in place of your judgment. Take and eat. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Oh, God, please set our hearts on that feast that we will eat with you when you come again and we sit down with, with people from throughout history, from all over the world, and we celebrate the peace that we have in Christ with one another and with our God. Amen. Let us stand and close our time singing our longing and our hope for the day when we will study war no more. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possession Shines one eternal. 
gospel will let us go from this place as ambassadors to the kingdom of heaven taking God's word out with us wherever we go and as we go and let us also go as agents of both justice and peace knowing that it is the gospel that empowers them both and brothers and sisters let us go faithfully walking in the light of the Lord amen let's go in peace the Harpers will be down front they would love to talk to you if you'd like to meet and greet Chuck and Cindy. Um, Chase and I will be down front if you need to talk to us or if you need prayer. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, But go and encourage someone on your way out.